When it comes to advocating for people with disabilities, Alet Mansky has been a very, very busy man. For decades, the community organizer, social entrepreneur, and author has made activism his middle name, a role he passionately embraced after his daughter was born with Down syndrome. Al's most recent effort is the push for the Canadian Disability Benefit, intended to tackle the issue of disability poverty. If passed into law, it will be an historic achievement. We talk with Al about that initiative and a lot, lot more. Next. Welcome to In the Business of Change, where we speak with social entrepreneurs impacting their communities and the world. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum, publisher and editor-in-chief of Sea Change magazine. On today's episode, we speak with Al Edmansky about a life and career dedicated to advocacy of the highest order, which helps explain his appointment to the Order of Canada, among other accolades. In our conversation, Al applauds the changing face of disability, one that today sees people with disabilities as empowered agents of change. We reflect on his success in introducing the world's first disability savings plan and where it sits today. Al then discusses his latest book, what's keeping him busy today, and why the Canadian disability benefit would be an important step towards lifting disabled Canadians out of poverty. You've been an advocate for individuals with disabilities for many, many years. I'm curious whether you've witnessed uh, an evolution and how society uh, perceive people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, so my background is a, as a community organizer. And um, so maybe the way to, to answer your question is to, you know, look at what we were community organizing around back in the, um, in the late 70s. Um, and those were uh, to close these massive institutions that were warehousing uh, people with disabilities. So it wasn't a, a across the board societal uh, view of disability, but it was out there that if you had a disability, you should be in some kind of a facility. Right. And those were horrible, horrible places. And so um, that's uh, fortunately changed, but not completely. So the irony is there are still, for example, Elisa, uh, close to 15,000 people with disabilities living in long-term care facilities who should not be there. Um, uh, I mean, as best as I can tell, the majority of people who live in long-term care facilities should not be there, but there are people who are not seniors right. who have a disability and that's where they are. So we're still, to some extent, warehousing, but there has been a shift the big institutions have closed now. And uh, so community-based living uh, is an an alternative. So that's a big shift. Uh, But maybe the biggest shift is that um, the the rise in power and pride among people with disabilities themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, in in many ways, it's no longer a question I should be answering. Uh, I'm more an observer now in that context because people with disabilities are speaking quite well for themselves. Thank you very, very much. And this is, it's, it's, it's an explosion. I don't think it's yet on the scale of, let's say, Black Lives Matters, um, but we're not far behind that. Uh, and the explosion is not just in people's uh, 
authenticity and voice, the explosion is cultural as well. The irony, of course, is that people with disabilities have been major players in society throughout history, but it's now uh, more and more and more and more and more uh, apparent. So that's the biggest change. Right. No, I, I definitely, I definitely see that. And I also see that the way we speak about people with disabilities, the way society um, supporting them in their own advocacy and their, their self-advocacy, I think it, the way I see it, I'm not involved the way you are though, but I see that has changed also. And I wonder as a follow-up question, um, you know, because we've, we'll talk about this in a second, the policy and legislative uh, changes, some of which you've had a huge impact on, but um, would any of those changes, um, would those have been possible without societal change? Or do you think vice versa, that societal change follows legislative and policy change? Like, do you, what, what is the chicken and the egg here? Um, and what, you know, should we be mindful of in that respect? Well, it, it's a, it, it's very intricate. I think the interplay between broad public support, you know, cultural shifts and attitudes toward groups of people that have been marginalized by society and the legislative uh, policy shifts that are necessary. So I think you have to do both <laughs> at the same time yeah. and uh, which comes first. I'm not 100% sure mm. what, what I know uh, from my own experience. Uh, so it's really my own observations. Uh, so I suppose anecdotal in that sense is that broad, um, bold, public policy decisions require uh, a cultural and public support. And so we need to be working uh, at that level as well as at the legislative. And crossing your fingers, hope to die, if we just do this legislative thing, uh, that's gonna be enough is no longer the case. Right. Um, the guy who invented the plurid, Edward yeah. Land, said that the job of the inventor is to prepare the way so that when your invention arrives, the public say, what took you so long? And I think our chat task and our job and our challenge as, um, as advocates for justice and equity is to prepare the culture <laughs> so that it says, what's taking us so long here? Does that Got make it. sense? Yeah, no, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And the, the interplay, it makes a lot of sense too. Like it may, it's, you know, they both are necessary sort of working almost in tandem. Yeah. I often, uh, I describe it as um, the, the cultural determinants of change um, are, you know, as important yeah. as some of those other things. And that, you know, we can't rely now on just the kind of policy folks to take it or a few big organizations to take it we need you know it's a full it's it's really movement building yeah. um, because these systemic challenges are are so big that uh, they require bold political decisions and those won't happen uh, unless politicians uh, understand the force that's behind them and that they will be made accountable and will have to pay if they don't do it i mean Politicians may want to do the right thing, but they're also calculating about what the political payoff is on something. So that's sort of the, you yeah. know, the practical side of it. That's just the way politics works. Um, 
But, you know, which brings me to the question of, of uh, the Registered Disability Savings Plan, which you were instrumental in establishing a number of years ago. If you can remind me what year that was, that would be wonderful. But that was huge. And I'm wondering what inspired that initiative now that we're sort of bringing the, you know, the, the discussion to um, these types of changes in, in, and community backing, perhaps, in, in that change. And has it met your expectations? I'm wondering, has it, you know, what was your, your initial goal in, in, in getting that done? And um, have you achieved that? So the, the, the Registered Disability Savings Plan came into being in 2008, and that was preceded by, I've lost track, but, you know, 10, 10 or 15 years of, of lobby, lobbying, advocacy, grassroots. Yeah you know, work across the country. And it was our, you know, it was a first attempt to address this whole question of poverty and its relationship to people with disabilities. And um, in, in the area I was working at the time, if you had a disability, people automatically thought, oh, well, then you need a service and you need a program. And so that's where all the money was going. And yet, uh, you know, uh, people were poor inside those services and programs. So they had no agency, they had no ability to direct their programs and services uh, or to look at alternatives to programs and services or to take care of themselves the way they wanted to be taken care of. And so that was the motivation was the, you know, was the understanding that basic income gives people choice, uh, augments their sense of agency and allows them to uh, take charge of their of their lives. And so our first attempt at that was uh, something like a registered disability savings plan. Um, and um, so that's, I, I would say the take up is probably, I don't know what, I don't follow it closely now, but there's certainly more than $6 billion in collective assets in the country uh, owned by people with disabilities in individual accounts. Um, and um, and maybe the take up is about 25% of the population. So not everybody has money to put into the plan, even right. though you get a certain amount, regardless of whether you put any money in, I won't get into those details. So one of the things that happened was that we thought that at the very least, uh, the service provider industry would promote it uh, for the people they provide services to, and, and they didn't. Um, mm. Now I'm making a generality, did, uh, but, uh, in a general way, they didn't. And when we asked them why, they they had trouble imagining that people with disabilities would need money uh, because they were providing services and programs. So it was a very oh. uh, patriarchal. It was, a, you know, <laughs> yeah. it was a very uh, kind of arrogant assumption about about you know what was important in other people's lives. Yeah. That really was an eye opener. Uh, that was a, a game changer for a lot of us was that the, this whole question of poverty um, was not you know, on the agenda for many of the mainstream uh, disability organizations. And so that mm. led a bunch of us to begin thinking about this whole question of a, the guaranteed livable you know, income um, and what the application of that would be to uh, to people with disabilities, and what the benefit would be, and the degree of poverty that exists, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's a long answer to your question, but I think one of the unintended consequences of the disability savings plan was it actually made stark 
the relationship between disability and poverty. Hmm. And what about people with disabilities themselves as, in terms of a group, uh, as advocates for their own need to uh, rise above poverty and to, uh, to voice challenge on the issues, you know? Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's happening. Okay. Uh, you know, COVID just re- revealed just how extreme the poverty was. I mean, our, our estimates are about 1.4 to 1.5 million. That doesn't include all people with disabilities, okay. but that's, uh, you know, essentially um, adults with disabilities, you know, say between 18, 19 and, and 65. Yeah, uh, there's been a coming together. There's been a grand coming together of... Um, of people with disabilities uh, on this issue. And I think for the first time it's, it's, it's on the map and, um, and it's on the uh, agenda of government. Um, you know, it's, 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 it started yes. as a promise um, and uh, it's slowly becoming a commitment, but the commitment is not implementation. So there's a ton of work that needs to be done and, and people with disabilities are doing it. I, you know, I think, you know about uh, disability without poverty now. So there's, yep. you know, what, 17 members on the leadership team. Yeah. Um, 14 are people with disabilities. Uh, the staff are, you know, people with disabilities. And um, they're getting a lot of pro bono support from others, but they're, it's, uh, it's more than ably led by uh, people with disabilities, okay. and, as it should be. They yep. produced... Um, they counted up uh, 26 op-eds in French and English last year uh, in nine months. Um, wow. um, so all written. That's <laughs> so, amazing. So yeah, there's a, there's a major eruption in the voices of people who are experiencing poverty, who happen to be disability, and their, their allies and supporters. That's great to hear, um, as it should be, right? As that should evolve. Um, so tell me about the Canadian disability benefit, what it's about and um, where it stands today. Cause I know that if it's passed into law and I'm not sure when we'll find out about that, um, Canada would make history in many ways. And so, yeah, tell us more about it and provide the, the compelling case as to why uh, we should pass it and it should be passed as law. Well, I mean, just to emphasize what I said before, 1.4 million Canadian adults with disabilities are poor. And what that means is that they're making horrible choices sometimes between whether they're going to buy a, a bottle of aspirin to counteract some of the pain they're experiencing uh, or buy some groceries uh, or, um, you know, not having enough money to get the PPEs that they need or to get the protections related or to accommodate their life now that uh, people are more isolated than ever before. So people are falling further and further behind. I mean, the the poverty level uh, in, in Canada is significantly higher than what uh, many people with disabilities currently receive from provincial and territorial benefits. And so the idea of the Canada Disability Benefit is it would become a supplement to the income support that people with disabilities currently get either from their province or from their territory or uh, from a federal benefit they may receive or a, a, a private insurance benefit that they may receive. So what the magic number is uh, that will eventually be settled on um, 
is still up in the air. Um, there's going to be a lot of, I think, tough lobbying and advocacy that's going to have to come into being to make sure that everybody who needs the benefit gets it and to make sure that it's as high as possible. And in the opinion of disability without poverty, it should be higher than the uh, poverty line, mm -hmm. that there is in fact a disability poverty line that is 30 to 40% higher than the poverty line, 30%. 40% higher than the That's poverty line. Significant. To disabilities to participate uh, in Canadian society and, and, and do the kinds of things that, uh, that they want to do and should be doing. The other compelling case is that the studies that we've read suggest that every dollar that would be provided to uh, through a Canada disability benefit would be immediately circulated in the local economy. Hmm. So this is really an inclusive, inclusive economics perspective here, which is that this is not just um, uh, a, a thing to do uh, that will benefit people with disabilities, that the benefit is to the economy and that, uh, that so no longer do we do the trickle down economics, which is that we subsidize corporations and businesses who create jobs and the people who have those jobs pay taxes. And then out of those tax dollars, a little bit of that goes to support disabled people. Our argument is that you actually stimulate the economy more by uh, giving the money to disabled people because they will spend it and they will that will in turn create jobs and stimulate the economy that way. The Disability Without Poverty team is certainly hoping uh, and expecting that uh, and will be pushing that there will be uh, a significant attraction related to the disability benefit in the upcoming May federal budget. Um, so, so I would say that the, the, the promise uh, in 2020's throne speech is becoming more and more of a commitment. Mm -hmm. But this kind of work can you know, if, if a system wants to, this could take place over decades. Right. You know, the daycare, the subsidized daycare program started with the current prime minister's father, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And right. so, you know, if we're not careful, this thing will be studied, kicked up the road, get sucked into federal provincial negotiations that will be interminable, et cetera, et cetera. And so they'll keep saying, you know, hold on, it's coming, it's coming. So right. the, the real job of a movement and, uh, and the way disability with poverty sees it or appreciates the, the challenges is to create enough public support for fast tracking the candidate disability benefit. And so that was the reason why uh, they did the federal petition, which was closed last, you know, a week ago, Monday. And uh, that's the sort of basic approach that they're taking is this needs to be fast tracked. It's okay. kind of like a moonshot approach. <laughs> when a long, long, long time ago, the president of the United States says, we're going to put a, somebody on the moon, uh, you know, in, in five years, uh, we're going to fast track everything. They say it can't be done. We're going to do it. Well, we want fast tracking of the federal disability benefit only uh, in 18 months to two okay. years. That's okay. Right. Yeah. And uh, you feel good that that's a possibility, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing. Everyone seems to feel somewhat optimistic. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, optimism uh, on its own is not enough. There's uh, yes. going to be a ton of hard work that's yes. going to be required. Um, you know, a strong, united 
disability movement, uh, strong uh, alignment with the, uh, the anti-poverty, basic income community, the social housing community, environmental mo movement, rallying artists, influencers in society, etc. All of those are going to be important. Um, but the momentum suggests that, you know, a public opinion survey that Disability Without Poverty did earlier, uh, or actually last year now, uh, said that 88% of Canadians support fast action on uh, a candidate disability benefit, that okay. it's overdue, and that the benefit should be pegged higher than the poverty line, to, in effect, to this disability poverty line. Okay. Um, just yesterday, uh, over 40 senators came out uh, with a public letter to the prime minister and to the relevant federal cabinet minister saying, we support a candidate disability benefit and we support you doing it sooner rather than later. It's a nice, you know, the petition I mentioned had 18,000 signatures. Uh, I know disability without poverty team is, you know, kind of rallying up for a big year of uh, unifying, reaching out to the broader Canadian community. So I think everything is in place to, you know, to make this happen. Um, but it will take the, the kind of hard work that we all know is necessary. You can't leave anything to chance. No. The thing is, there are major, major, uh, uh, there's major competition for, uh, for resources. It's fierce competition. So you have to, you have to make sure that the Canada Disability Benefit is one of the top three priorities for funding. That's the key. Okay. Well, let's hope that moves forward the way we wanted to. Um, looking at the recent book that you wrote, The Power of Disability, that's the name of the book. Can you tell us uh, the premise of it and, and why it was so important for you to write? Well, I think it just, it, it primarily came from, you know, my own learning from my daughter, from, you know, from my daughter, Liz, and, and, and seeing her, the explosion in her, confidence, you know, competent, and her consciousness uh, uh, around uh, her power, around her own power. And, uh, and you know, I, and your readers, your listeners can't see me, but I'm, I'm, I'm in my 70s now. And so I've had over 40 years of seeing that same thing or observing that thing, uh, experiencing that among many, many disabled people is this, this profound power. power. And um, I, I just really wanted to write about my observations and try and reach out to people like me who kind of knew nothing about disability before, in my case, before my daughter was born and, and, and to say that there's something happening here, something extremely important. And in fact, my argument was that if the history of the world was written without the contributions of people with disabilities, you wouldn't recognize the world. So mm -hmm. these contributions have been going on all along. I'll just use an example, Elisa, is the, the birth of democracy. Um, John Milton uh, is a major contributor to people uh, taking charge of their own governance. Uh, and uh, he was writing treatises and uh, tracks related to democracy um, in the very, very early days. Uh, John Milton is a mm -hmm. man with a disability. Um, mm -hmm. the, one of the signers of the American Declaration of Independence was a man 
uh, Stephen Hawkins, a man with a disability. People often think of Helen Keller um, as, as a woman who was both blind and deaf, who, who made an impact on society, but they don't realize that she was known and preferred this nomenclature to be, as she was known as the socialist Joan of Arc, hmm. and was actually uh, uh, spied upon by the FBI. She was a, a very early supporter of the American Civil Liberties Union. She ran for the Communist Party at one time uh, and uh, uh, was a strong voice for birth control, birth of feminism, etc. cetera. Um, Mae Billingsworth, one of the most famous suffragettes in the, in the UK. Uh, she was kind of known as a tricycle or crippled suffragette with oh, ramp people with her, with her chair, et cetera. I could go on and on. <laughs> so those are all major players in the birth of growth of democracy, of equity, uh, inclusion, redistribution of wealth, et cetera. And they're all, they all come out of the disability world but people don't even realize that. Or if people know these people, they don't know them in terms of those contributions. That's why I wrote the book. So what's, yeah. what's next for you? Well, um, it's maybe next it's it's been going on for a while my, yeah. my wife and I have um, you know have observed that the majority of care in Canada is freely given lovingly given voluntarily given by family friends neighbors and co-workers that essentially 80 percent of the caring in Canada is done by family friends neighbors only 20% of the care is paid care. Yet all of the money and all of the attention is on paid care. Our resilience as a society means that we should be making sure that we nurture and nourish and support the hidden uh, foundation of our society, uh, which is natural caring. So that interests... Uh, my wife and I a lot. We've been working with uh, Ashoka internationally, you know, on this question. There's a lot of alignment with others who are saying, look, during the pandemic, it was our natural caring that was a major force uh, in getting us through this. Uh, true. It wasn't just the people who were paid. Of course, they're important, but it's, we can't ignore that all of that rests on natural caring. So that's a, a big interest of ours. And we're trying to figure out ways in which we can uh, support what we see is this growing awareness around the world. Wonderful. I, I know we're running out of time already, but in terms of lessons learned, and I always think of you as someone with a lot of persistence, considering how many years you'll, you'll keep at trying to do something, get something passed. What would you say are, are some of the, uh, the most important qualities or skills or whatever it is that gets a social entrepreneur, uh, moving, moving from idea to, to success? Well, it depends what you want to achieve. If, ah. uh, most most social entrepreneurs are actually you know pretty selfish and and pretty self interested. You your your head is down. You're just really focused on proving that your idea is the best idea in the world mm -hmm. and give me the money, uh, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so I mean, what is that? That's a very uh, kind of selfish. And you only you you only really look up to. Uh, uh, see about involvement with other people if it if it perpetuates or helps propel your vision for, forward, let's be honest. Right. And then you prove it work, works uh, and that it's not 
just luck and happenstance, but, and so then you want to, you know, kind of spread it around and in some ways. Uh, and so then you start aligning with others, but you're still kind of reporting back to your board of directors or to your investors or whatever. You're still saying, you know, there's value in me reaching out and partnering with that, but it's all in, in favor of where I'm going with it. Mm-hmm. So the, the, that, the, I call that the second inflection point that, that to me, the most important uh, is the third inflection point, which is that even if you are successful in spreading and scale, it's not enough to deal with the forces that are out there. Mm-hmm. We have to figure out a way to align with people beyond our self-interest or to rethink what our mutual interest is. Um, and uh, that's mass movement organizing. So uh, does that make sense? And yeah, I, I, yeah. You know, because so, so many of us have kind of so-called, if I can put the metaphor, climbed the mountain of spread and scale because that was the dogma. And, yeah. and, uh, and it takes a darn long time decades usually and you get to the top of the mountain and you're tired and you think okay I've done it (laughs) and after resting a bit you you look around you and all you see are other mountain peaks and on those mountain peaks are people just like you who've done it and you realize the change you want the wide scale shift in the number of people who are poverty in this world the the climate justice agenda, you name the agenda, it will not take place unless you figure out a way to work with those other people on those mountaintops. And you're not going to live long enough to do that. So you have to figure out a way to all get down to the valley and work work together there in a new way. I don't know. Uh, so that's sort of where yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's where culture lives. Public support lives. Yeah. And yeah. No, I would have to 100% agree with you. I just, no one really has told me that before when I ask him the question. That I think is a testament to the work that you've done and, and the longevity in this space because, you know, a lot of people will give me very different answers. You just have to work hard. You just got to, you know, but I, and I, all that is important, but I think what you said is, is fundamental in terms of long term change. I wish it was possible for uh, good people who work hard. Uh, who are talented and uh, and have achieved some success. I wish that was enough. Yeah. But we have to find a way to bring all of those people together with all of the people who have been left out, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 uh, create a mass agency <laughs> of involvement. Um, and um, there's a lot of uh, heartbroken, lovesick people out there. Mm. And, in many ways, I think our job is to rally um, the lovesick. And so that means our arms have to be open and we have to find a way to forgive other people's trespasses and hope that they will forgive us and to, uh, and to create uh, a, a mass movement. The scale of the challenge around climate, scale of the challenge around poverty, social housing, you name it, is so profound uh, that... Uh, you know, that that kind of unity is indispensable. So if social entrepreneurs can fold some of that in when they're starting out, then that's the movement building we need. Thank you for listening to In the Business of Change. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to hear other conversations with inspired social entrepreneurs and change makers working on challenges in their communities and across the globe. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum.